0: Welcome along to the Brain for Business, Brain for Life podcast with me, Lauren Snell, where we take the lessons from evidence-based academic research, most particularly involving the brain and behavioral sciences, and translate them in a way that is accessible for leaders and organizations. For this, our 10th episode, I'm delighted to welcome back to Brain for Business, Brain for Life, my collaborator, Professor Shane O'Mara, Professor of Experimental Brain Research at Trinity College Dublin, and Welcome, Trust Senior Investigator. Shane, great to speak to you again. So, so tell me, how do we deal with biases, and, and what does it mean for us?
1: Yes, yeah, so biases are, a, are a, a pervasive aspect of how we think about the world, and uh, they're a genuine problem. So maybe for our listeners, what I'd ask you to do is, is to imagine that uh, you're a metallurgist, uh, your job is to look after planes. Uh, these planes have been shot up uh, during the Second World War. And they, uh, you're presented with a drawing, and it's got lots and lots of dots on the drawing showing where uh, bullets have, have uh, pierced the, uh, the plane. Now, what would you advise we should do in terms of, of uh, uh, where we would place armor on the plane? So you've got bullets through the tips of the wings. You've got them through the tail. You've got them through the, the body of the plane. Uh, where would you put the armor? Well, the answer of the metallurgists during the Second World War was to take the planes where they had bullet holes and add armor to where those holes were, because this seems like a kind of an obvious thing to do. Now, imagine you're somebody else. Imagine you're Abraham Wald, and you're a statistician, and uh, you're asked to uh, figure out where you should put the armor as well. Um, Wald looks at the world in a very, very different way. What he does is he looks at the planes that have not returned. Um, and uh, looks at the planes that have returned. And what he does is basically say, actually, what we need to do is put armour where uh, there are no holes, because where there are holes in, for example, the midsection of the fuselage or the midsection of the wings, the uh, plane has not come back. Whereas uh, shooting off the tip of of the wing means your plane can come back.
0: What does that suggest, then, that we perhaps as humans, have a tendency to look for the information we can find rather than the information we we can't find and and draw conclusions as a consequence? Exactly. This this bias is known formally as survivorship
1: bias. And what it means is that we focus on the hits and we ignore the misses. Uh, We focus on successes and we ignore failures. Um, And worst of all, we focus on measuring what we can measure rather than thinking about what it is that we should be measuring. And this ends up being a big problem in business all the time. Uh, It ends up being a big problem, in fact, in all aspects of of public policy. Uh, You know, if you take, for example, the problem with cars in towns, uh, with too many cars, small space, uh, what we tend to do is think about the projections and how those are going to be handled over time based on what we can measure, which is the numbers of cars in towns, rather than resetting the problem completely and saying, actually, maybe we should just ban cars uh, how How will we handle cars then well we don 't have to. We have a different problem, which is a public transport problem
0: uh, that, that actually reminds me of that old story of a conference called in that was it was it in New York or somewhere else back in the 1890s to deal with the, the problem of horse manure on the streets because there were so many carriages and so many horses and they came up with all these conclusions. But within a few years, the conclusions were completely irrelevant because they hadn't thought of the car yeah. and the car completely changed the way things were done.
1: Yeah, and what they were doing was measuring what they could measure. And of course, that's a brilliant example of, of how things can go wrong. The idea there was, and I think this was true for London too, that there would be something like 8 metres or 10 metres of, <laughs> of horse manure on the street streets by about eighteen or 1920 or 1930. And of course, that's not what happened. The car came along and the problem was completely redefined. And all of those people who had to worry about horse manure were suddenly out of work.
0: And so uh, they, they, they had to, to, to find new ways of doing things. But what does that mean then for, say, public policy? D- does that mean that people who are making public policy should well not bother dealing with the data they can or should they think differently about things
1: i I think it means that they have to think think differently about things but you know when you think about it uh, it, it's an entirely understandable mistake that we make because what's in front of our eyes is what's easy to see and that's what we measure um and uh, because we do that uh we end up with something that looks like it might reflect reality but the the reality truth is that we can actually change that reality and uh, as i've said there are loads of examples of of uh, survivorship bias you know that there's the famous one of steve Jobs uh, left college early so did uh, bill gates and mark zuckerberg so that the lesson that you might draw is well actually if i drop out of college i'll become a billionaire as well the likelihood is that you won't
0: well i'm guessing that the likelihood in general is that we won't none of us will become billionaires apart from one or two random examples but particularly not for, for those who do. But is there something innately human, do you think, about looking for those those examples of the the unique case, the 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 one in a million, and thinking that could be us? Is that yeah? We do that all
1: the time. And you know, there's an old joke in medicine about how. Uh, uh, if you seek advice from an old person about how to become very old, the only person who can tell you that is somebody who has become very old because they're not dead. Uh, and what you actually need to know about are the people who made poor health choices uh, who ended up dead earlier. And those are the people we need to be looking at, not necessarily the, the survivors who by chance have managed to make it through to the age of 104 or whatever it happens to be.
0: It, it reminds me um, of when I was when I was young, growing up in the, in the far north of Australia, my father or, uh, or my stepmother coming home one day and saying that uh, that the lady up the road from us had uh, had set herself up as a as a marriage counsellor, and in my young naive mind, probably around ten or twelve at the age, I remember thinking this is completely mad because well she's divorced, and in hindsight, and, and in fact not even in hindsight at the time, I remember my father, my stepmother saying to me, well as a consequence of being divorced maybe she knows some of those things that can go wrong in relationships which has led to her being divorced and maybe therefore she's well placed to advise
1: yes there's a good example in you of of two different kinds of bias uh confirmation bias you think you uh, you should be looking for what goes right uh, and also survivorship bias. Only those who continue to be married uh, and actually your folks were on the money, weren't they? Because they, what they were doing was encouraging you to think about what might go wrong and how you can learn from failure uh, rather than from success.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And look, in fairness, I was only ten or twelve, so so we ha- have to have to give me that. But you've grown out of it in the meantime, absolutely, absolutely. But look, you mentioned then confirmation bias. I, I, I guess we we perhaps see that quite a bit when people go on to uh, their favourite source of news, whether it be Facebook or, uh, or or perhaps I don't want to cast aspersions, but something more reputable, such as a you know the New York Times or the Guardian or, or even even the, the Telegraph. A, in in London, and, and look for for news stories which are going to confirm what they've already believed or what they've already decided.
1: Yeah, so confirmation bias is utterly pervasive, uh, and there there's a you know there, it possibly arises out of this deep need that we have to maintain a congruent worldview. Uh, that uh, the experience of things being different, uh, uh, being other than we predict the world to be, is kind of an unpleasant one. So what people persistently do is they they look for sources of evidence that tell them that the thoughts that they have, the the choices that they've made, were in fact the correct ones. Uh, And this is what we know as confirmation
0: bias. Okay. and So... Should, should we therefore take, take a step back? Should we perhaps make active choices to, to look for new sources that are different to the ones that we normally look at or, or should we just accept that we perhaps need to be more critical in our thinking?
1: Oh, I think the latter. We have to learn uh, about the ways our brains work and our our minds work where making or having thoughts are concerned. And really, what we should be thinking is that uh, our mind is a hypothesis generating device, it gives us an answer. It may not be the right answer. Uh, and what we should actually actively do is cultivate uh, what Darwin uh, used to do uh, the habit of writing down counterexamples to things that you believe. Because, uh, in his words, uh, he found that these things would slip out of his grasp whereas the things that were supported what he would believe would stick around in his mind for a very long time. Uh, and this is why he was so slow to publish, because he spent a long, long time looking for counterexamples rather than uh, supporting examples for his point of view. It's easy to go out there and dig and find something that supports what you think. It's much, much harder to go out there and dig and look for something that's a counterexample to what you think. Uh,
0: so if, if we take perhaps Darwin as an example, are you saying that you know, once he had settled on his theory of evolution and his theory, I know others developed it as well as around the same time, but on a theory of evolution, he then went and said, okay, where are the holes in my argument? Where could this be wrong and, and how could I prove that? And
1: that, that's exactly what he did. And you see that from his correspondence with uh, naturalists all over the world. He deliberately tried to find counterexamples that would prove him wrong. Um, and uh, he only, as, as you've mentioned, uh, uh, Alfred Russell Wallace also uh, was developing a similar kind of idea later than, than uh, Darwin, but came to similar kinds of conclusions. So Darwin generously uh, published his own theory as well as Wallace's, or had Wallace publish at the same time as him. But uh, uh, Darwin had produced this masterwork uh, on the origin of species. And he was very clear in that book, if you go and read it, uh, that uh, there were lots of places that he, he lacked understanding and he was very, very clear about where the problems uh, for his worldview lay. And uh, actually the biggest problem that he had was understanding what was then called germlines, uh, how inheritance
0: works, uh, because he didn't know about genetics. Okay, so is that because the science of genetics as we know it now just didn't just exist? Just didn't
1: exist. Uh, and in fact, uh, uh, Mendel, the monk in uh, Austria, had published a few obscure papers uh, in uh, a, a very obscure journal at this time, which took 30-odd years to be discovered, um, uh, or rediscovered uh, in the late 1800s. Uh, and indeed, when they were published, uh, they disconfirmed a particular view that Darwin had about uh, inheritance which that it involved the blending of characteristics Uh, but darwin had difficulty in figuring out how uh, genetic transmission in principle might work Um, but uh, he was very happy to admit where the problem in his thinking was
0: and does that perhaps touch on 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 what i think is being called the dunning-kruger effect that principle that the people who know more the more you know you you're more aware of what you don't know whereas the less you know you're less aware and so you perhaps have that that in, inbuilt uh, bias as well
1: yeah so let's let's talk about the dunning kruger effect uh, i think this is one of the most important <laughs> discoveries in psychology ever uh, and it's named for dunning and kruger who published the original paper on it so wh- what they did was very interesting they uh administered uh groups of participants uh uh, standard tests of, of uh, logical thinking uh, problem solving all of this kind of thing the kind of thing that you might run across when you do uh, an IQ test but they also uh, administered them uh, tests of how confident they were in their solutions and what they found terribly embarrassingly I guess is that a consistent and persistent large group of people are very bad at solving problems and have very high confidence in their own solutions in those problems, um, uh, hence the, uh, the phrase, that's a bit Dunning-Kruger, uh, uh, it means that you have high confidence and actually your expertise is very low, whereas the, yeah, a whole slew of research has gone on afterwards to to explore this phenomenon and, as you've just said, experts tend to be very good at looking for holes in their arguments. And when they give talks or whatever it happens to be, they tend to want to find the limits of where they're right and where they're wrong. Uh, Whereas people who aren't so expert tend not to because they're doing this confirmation bias Mm. thing. They they are looking for evidence that they're correct when actually you should be doing the opposite.
0: But but I think you, you perhaps hit the nail on the head there to a certain extent when you said the experts when they are doing talks. Because if you're putting yourself in that situation, you are putting yourself out there to be challenged and to be questioned. And even from the position of not wanting to be embarrassed by not knowing an answer, you have to perhaps reflect and think, okay, what what am I actually really saying? It reminds me of another another example from when I was uh, perhaps a little bit older than the ten twelve, when I was a teenager, talking to someone who was quite proud about the fact that he could uh, pull in at the uh, the McDonald's drive through, pick up some uh, pick up a big mac and some fries, and then drive down the uh, drive down the highway or motorway, eating his uh, fries and burger without having any hands on the wheel oh, <laughs> because he would use his knees and I guess in his case it was a the example well well I do it all the time and I haven't have had an accident yet maybe you've been lucky
1: yeah exactly this is actually the prime example of survivorship bias isn't it because he's
0: survived for a while uh, but there's only so much road yes uh, and perhaps also that uh, that, that that Dunning-Kruger uh, uh, effect so how then do we actually kind of make decisions how, how does our thinking process work in yeah that so
1: the, there's two ways of thinking or, there,
0: there are several different ways of thinking about this but if
1: we uh, think about it from a psychological point of view rather than an economic point of view of, of rational utilitarians uh, th- there's been a real revolution in our thinking over the last uh, couple of decades led by in particular Daniel Kahneman who uh, Ironically enough, won the uh, Nobel Memorial Prize for economics uh, for overturning the idea of rational man. And uh, what Kahneman does is, is suggest that actually we've got two different systems for thinking. We have a, what he calls a System 1, which is a really fast system. So if I ask you a question, what colour is your car? Boom, you give me the answer. Dot grey. Yeah, what colour is your front door? What? Did you cut your grass last week? I did. You, see, all of those straight boom boom quick answers and they come to mind without you having to do any reflection about them but if i was to say something else to you uh is cutting your grass an ecologically sensible thing to be doing when you look at the embedded carbon in the grass cutting and the destruction of the microenvironment for insects
0: then I need to think about it and I need to reflect and I might need to uh, go and and refer to some experts in the field. Exactly. And that's uh, what
1: Kahneman uh, refers to as our system two kind of thinking. One is fast, quick. It can give accurate solutions and it can give inaccurate ones. Uh, And the other is slow and reflective. And it can give accurate solutions, and it can give inaccurate ones. Like, you've told me correctly the colour of your car. I've seen your car, so I know the colour is correct. (laughs) Or at least there's intersubjective agreement between us. I know what colour your front door is, and I don't know that you cut your grass, but I can go and check that. Um, But equally, I I, I could ask you, uh, estimate 65
0: multiplied by 142. Um, Give
1: me an answer of...
0: Something. Proper, uh, so, so I'd probably say somewhere around 9,000 or something. Or
1: Yeah, but you, you can do that quickly. Humans are good at providing estimates, uh, and it will probably be wrong. <laughs> but you can calculate it uh, using your System 2. You can take out your calculator, or you can work it out with a pen, uh, and you can get the answer uh, correct. Um, but the, the key thing is that System 2 is slow. It takes time. And we don't like... Engaging in lots of thought. It's kind of hard. <laughs> uh, but Kahneman's view is very much that the biases that we have arise are, are, are out of uh, the defects uh, in the processing that these two systems engage in. And what we need to be better at doing is is recognizing that these systems are not perfect and that there are times when one is perfect. You know, is that moving yellow shape there a bus that's going to hit me? in other words i need to run uh, <laughs> to get out of its way or is it a tiger that's going to eat me or whatever it happens to be the, you know there are times when fast decisions are really really required uh, but there are other times uh, you know what when you need slow decision making you know what is the appropriate density of buses that i should allow as a traffic planner on pier street given usage rates there's no obvious answer to that mm. that's one that you have to sit down and work through uh, a whole series of information to come at a, a, a reasonable solution for
0: I'm just thinking, uh, as you're talking there, about that sort of system one, system two, and so say some of the, the practical applications. We you know, Asking me there about the implications of me mowing my lawn or uh, you know, doing a calculation on the, the, the ideal number of buses on a particular street or a particular road. But if you are in, for example, a senior role in an organisation and you've got far too much work and you've got far too much pressure and you just need to make a decision is there a danger that you might be constantly pushed into or pushing yourself into system one thinking and as a consequence falling victim to too many biases too often
1: oh so that, that's actually a, a really great uh question isn't it so the, the, there's a book the authors of which have slipped out of my mind, uh, published a few years ago, called The Org. Uh, And one of the things that they do in that book is focus on the amount of time that CEOs, C-level people, have alone uh, to make decisions. Uh, In other words, their unscheduled time to reflect. And it turns out that for many CEOs, they often have as little as 15 minutes Uh, in the course of a day by themselves Uh, in other words they're always at meetings they're always being preyed upon to make decisions one after the other and you can have a whole lot of things come together Um, so these people can be very powerful because you know they might have founded the company um, they might have the majority shareholding in the company so the people around them have an incentive not to annoy them because they don't want to get fired. <laughs> uh, their their financial future might uh, depend on it. Um, and uh, what I found fascinating about that, that study was the kind of position that CEOs can find themselves in where actually lots of the things that you need to do require reflection, they require space. But the structure of the corporate day or the organizational day doesn't allow you to do that. Now, if you think about other types of organizations, and this uh, wasn't a feature of, of the orgs book, if I recall it correctly, uh, kind of knowledge-based organizations. So I'm thinking like, for example, universities. I'm thinking um, uh, uh, military units. Uh, I'm thinking churches I'm and, and, and thinking those kinds of organisations even legal firms um, typically what you find in those kinds of organisations is that the people who are in charge are first among equals um, they're not people um, who are there because they own the organisation they're there uh, in that role because they're seen to serve the needs of the organisation and the power relations are negotiated and they're much more complicated Um but the survivability and longevity of organisations like that is much greater. You know, the the uh, the Catholic Church, as a, as an example, goes back almost two thousand years. Um, the uh, uh, University of Bologna goes back to the seventh century, approximately, or the eighth century. Where we are at the moment here in Trinity, we're going back uh, five centuries. Um, uh, and military organisations, in one form or another, uh, have been around for millennia, perhaps. Uh, I'm I'm guessing, for example, that the, the current structure of the uh, Italian Armed Forces owes something to how uh, it was organized uh, under the, the Caesars all those years ago, uh, because there's a kind of a, a trajectory and a prowess uh, and a knowledge base that individuals have within these organizations that's required to serve the overall need of the organization. Whereas um, there's there have been a number of economic studies on survivorship where companies are concerned um, and the longest and oldest companies in the world um, let, let's pick Western Europe for an example don't go back much more than 100 years or so there there are a few that go back further There's I know there's a, a Japanese company that goes back uh, something like 600 years, there used to be a candle making company here in Dublin uh, Ratborns, that went back to the 1400s um, But they're unusual. Uh, But, you know, uh, Jack Welch died a week or two ago. Uh, uh, There was a counterpart company to his, uh, GEC, uh, the General Electric Company of the UK. Uh, It was an all-powerful conglomerate during the 1970s and 1980s. It's gone. ICI, Imperial Chemical Industries, gone. Uh, If you pull out magazines from the 1960s and you see all these wonderful adverts for airlines that were around then twa and all of these they're all gone
0: are you suggesting that that is at least in part because of the sort of perhaps failures of decision making
1: oh i, I think there there has to be decision making is at the core of what an organization does you have to make decisions about how you
0: deploy people uh, how you
1: spend your money how you allocate your space those are the kind of core things that a, that a, that a company has to do um, and if you're pushing into a new space um, one that hasn't existed before you won't necessarily get it right um, because you don't have any past examples uh, to go by uh, whereas if you know, you're know you doing something in retail shops in various forms have been around for hundreds of years uh, restaurants have been around for f- in various forms for hundreds of, hundreds of years there's a lot of learning that you can get from how they've gone right and how they've gone wrong uh, and we've seen uh, an evolution just in the last 60 years of how shops do their business uh, and you see how when they've, they've gone into the kind of online delivery, uh, they've all made <laughs> terrible mistakes.
0: Yeah. Uh, apart perhaps from the, those who are truly disruptive like Amazon, who've just changed, uh, changed business models. You're talking about shops there. How do, you, how do you avoid that, I guess what could be called hindsight bias of, of you know, in, in hindsight, we should have seen something, but actually at the time it wasn't so easy.
1: Kahneman has uh,
0: a, a great phrase and I, I really
1: recommend everybody go and read his book uh, and study it carefully, um, uh, thinking fast and slow. Uh, and he has a phrase about how the world is structured uh, and it, it, it's, what you see is all there is. And this is the problem that I think shops and other entities confront. You see what's in front of your eyes uh, and it's, that's all there is cognitively available to you. Uh, and being able to step back and sample what's going on in other places is actually a very, very difficult thing to do. Uh, And uh, what's very, very hard is is to try and understand how the landscape is changing. Um, And and we've seen it how uh, 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 the the kind of bricks-and-mortar superstores on the edges of towns had the unintended effect of gutting town centres. And these bricks-and-mortar places, in turn, are being gutted because who goes to buy... Uh, things in these out of town places when actually you can just get Amazon to deliver it for you or whoever uh, by drone or whatever <laughs> method that will be coming. Um, so, seeing these things in the background is actually very, very difficult. Um, books, I think, for example, are a, a really good example of how uh, people have adapted in ways that are uh, interesting. You know, so uh, we saw book sales fell during the, the Great Recession, but the sales of, heart, of, of hard books, uh, paper books have started to go up again quite dramatically Uh, but bits of the market opened out that nobody would have expected Uh, audiobooks are about a quarter of books sold now Uh, whereas your Kindle for your mobile phone was a failure because it's a horrible thing to, to read on whereas a Kindle actually works quite well for
0: very many purposes. Mm, but it, but even even Kindles perhaps haven't taken off ultimately in the way that may have been hoped. There's There has been a comeback for the hard. Oh yeah, my
1: book. yeah, absolutely. I, and uh, you know, if you were uh, a bookshop owner around about 2009, 2010, when the Kindles were really starting to get big, would you have wondered, would you be still in business in 10 years? And actually, you know, you probably are still in business and you're worried about uh, the Kindle killing your trade. Uh, has uh, been one that you didn't really need to worry about because people buy serials, uh, they buy pulp novels, uh, all those kinds of things on the Kindle. But think books that they really care about, they go and buy. Um, But the mobile phone, you would never have thought, if you were a publisher, that you would be augmenting your sales uh, by people listening to
0: books it, it, there, I remember hearing a story once about uh, comparing say kodak and, and Nestle in the way they responded to to in- innovation and kodak uh, essentially or one of their one of their people invented digital photography yet they saw that as a threat to their core business yeah. of film whereas again someone from Nestle created the, those little capsules those little pods and they thought they'd give it a go. And so now actually, the two uh, two core businesses for Nestle of instant coffee, that granulated dried coffee that we, we all know, and in some cases hate, in some cases love, and those pods quite happily coexist. And maybe it is, as you said, the, the pods for some people, they're for special occasions. For others, it's their day-to-day drink, but they're still both there. And it's that hindsight uh, bias sort of can play yeah, differently. And, and
1: you've kind of hidden another thing there, haven't you, which is the ability of the organisation to absorb new information uh, that's really important for the organisation. Um, you know, I, I think uh, uh, in the music trade, it's also been this similar kind of story. When MP3s came along, with compressed sound and uh, baud rate clipping and all the other things that happened, the uh, manufacturers of CDs thought, well, look, we've just had a boom, everybody's gone out and bought CDs to replace their tapes and their uh, 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 their long-playing records. Uh, there's no reason why this won't continue. But actually, you know, this compression technology, it turns out that for a lot of music consumption purposes, people don't care about high fidelity. They, they just want, you know, a reasonable sound to listen to. Um, and, you know, there's another great example, of course, is Nokia. Um, they had uh, uh, in-house... Uh, some version of a smartphone before Apple did. Um, But they were never able to get, the guys who were developing it or the people who were developing it never got traction. Uh, And the story also goes that Microsoft had a similar thing with the tablet and they couldn't get uh, it off the ground. Um, And it took a very, very long time for those companies to realize,
0: actually, the world has changed. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, uh, you know, in, in terms of the world changing, I guess it's always been there where we've had those those people who are the you know the 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 front runners the forerunners the ones who the early adopters if if you like of of technology but when it comes to something like the adoption of of new things is there a i guess a bandwagon effect or, or a cascade effect from those one or two outliers who adopt something and that sort of leads away for other people to jump on board
1: yeah, so the I I I don't know the right answer to that is the, is the honest truth. I, and really all I can do is think about some case studies. So Plastic Logic uh had a, a, a version of a tablet uh back in the you know the 2008-2009 period with a touchscreen and other things, but it never really took off even though Plastic Logic were uh, obviously a very innovative company. Um so I guess there's always kind of a tension between early adopters and late adopters. Uh, and how the social norm uh, is established in any particular case. Um, You know, I'm thinking back when I I got a mobile phone myself, I only gave in to getting a mobile phone because everybody around me had one and was given out to me that (laughs) they could never get me on the phone. (laughs) And I was given an old phone uh, by my mother (laughs) uh, uh, because I just wouldn't use a phone. I just thought I don't need this in my life. And now I think I need a phone in my life, which is a terrible transformation in a way.
0: We're we're all uh, we're all addicted to them. But I I guess what what I'm sort of thinking there is once you sort of get that momentum and you start to see it around you, well, everyone has a phone or everyone is doing X, even if obviously not everyone is, but we have that that perception. Uh, So that that perception is
1: kind of an availability bias, uh, which is, again, another kind of bias that we have uh, where we don't think about frequencies, because we're very bad at probability and calculating probability. What we do is enumerate instances and infer the frequency from the enumeration of the incident. Um, So uh, do lots of people have mobile phones is is your question in 2005. Uh, uh, What you do is you think about uh, how many people you know have a mobile phone, and that's the social norm, and that's the frequency. Whereas what you should be doing is something which we don't do, uh, but is actually the correct thing to do, which is to go and calculate the number of mobile phones per hundred thousand of the population.
0: Or, or even going back to your uh, your, your initial story about the, uh, the the fighter bombers coming back, looking at how many people don't have a mobile phone or don't have a whatever, uh, and 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 going from there. If we were to to think about what this actually means, say for organisations working with their customers, service users, uh, stakeholders, etc., or for 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 governments, policy bodies, how can they use nudges or? how can they use bias and and the, the key learnings from bias in order to to do things differently
1: so i th- i think what we need to understand is how it is that people are built uh, and we need to be very good at understanding how it is that we sample our world uh how we make decisions about in- the interactions that we have uh with the world uh and you use the word nudge there so i'm going to pick it up very deliberately um what we can do is is uh uh, and this is this word nudge we owe to Richard Taylor and uh, Cass Sunstein. We can create the choice architecture in the environment so that we're more likely to choose a good thing rather than a bad thing. And the the classic example is is how you lay out food choices in a cafeteria. If uh, you have access first to the good stuff that we want you to eat—bananas and fruit and all the all the other things people are less likely to choose the uh, ultra-processed foods um, if they are presented with the good stuff first. Whereas if you're presented with the good stuff after you've already made your choices, you won't unpick your choice. So what we need to do is think about it. Now, you're not being compelled in either case. You're not being forced to take the uh, the, the, the foods that we evolved to eat versus the, the ultra-processed. They're both available. Um, but all we're doing is, is saying that, well, maybe we should nudge the... the you in a in a direction that's good for you you know we we have a public health crisis at the moment where uh, um, the the coronavirus is concerned and one of the key things that uh, will mitigate the spread of, of coronavirus is getting people to wash their hands and to sterilize their hands um, if there are no sinks around if there's no soap available if there's no hand sterilizer easily available people won't do this you know you we don't necessarily have to force people to wash their hands, but if we establish a new norm uh, where you do, and th- we make hand sanitizer very, very widely available, uh, then people will be more likely to do that. So we, we we need to design the environment to stop people having to
0: think about what's the right thing to do and make it
1: easier for them to do the right thing.
0: Isn't there a danger uh, that you can become perhaps slightly paternalistic and making decisions for other people and taking away that individual agency?
1: Yeah, there is. And uh, I think that's an argument without substance. Uh, We we don't make that argument in respect of effluent handling in houses. Uh, We've taken away the choice to get it, uh, uh, typhoid and cholera. Um, And we insist that you pay uh, fees to uh, allow us to engage in waste handling. Um, It doesn't matter that you can call it whatever you want. You can say it's coercive. I, I don't care um, you know there's a, a spillover of the individual's behaviour and it affects other people um, and uh, you know the, we have to decide uh, in our hyper-social societies and our societies are hyper-social social contagion has important effects on the behaviour of others example that one sets can have an inadvertent uh, effect on the behaviour of others um, and uh there are lots of other examples of this. This argument used to be made about uh, people wearing helmets on motorbikes. We don't make that argument anymore. It's a stupid one. Um, you don't make that argument about uh, people uh, wearing seatbelts. Why? Because there's an overwhelming public interest in not having people die behind their car uh, in cars, uh, which is uh, or which dwarfs the uh, uh, paternalism argument. The, the it's a substances argument, as far as I'm concerned.
0: Okay, so there's there's obviously a lot in these uh, these biases. It just uh, we're going to wrap up now, but just out of curiosity, how many different biases do you think there are out there?
1: Uh, well, there's a a, a fantastic uh, piece by Buster Benson on Medium. If you just go and type in uh, Buster Benson uh, uh, cognitive bias cheat sheet, you'll find uh, he, he did a, an amazing. Thing where he organised all the the biases, and uh, he he found I think it was at 150 or 160 biases that uh, that we have. Uh, we have loads and loads of them. Um, and there's a uh, I think it, what he did very usefully in this chart was basically uh, figure out how we deal with the world um, be- because the world is a complex place. And he basically says our our biases arise because we have difficulties with me- remembering things. Uh, our biases arise because we have to act fast. What's the right thing to do now, quick? Um, uh, there might be too much information, too many sources of information. Um, and then finally, we find it difficult to extract meaning. Uh, we might find it difficult to uh, understand what's going on. You know, if you were uh, in Kodak in... 1990 and you've heard that somebody has invented a a really bad digital camera uh, and you've got a business model that's generating hundreds of millions or billions or whatever it was processing film well how will the world change Uh, or if you were those poor people who are making uh, uh, those airline check-in tickets that we all used to have with the carbon paper and all (laughs) all of that stuff uh, and Ryanair make that go away by getting you to check in online what happened to your business yeah. Um, you know extracting from the the very uh poor signals that are out there in the environment uh, something that allows you to figure out what's
0: going on can often be very hard yeah so we, we, we don't know what we don't know we, exactly yeah and uh, and until a black swan hits us all yeah, exactly so okay, on that note, Shane, great to speak to you again as always, and uh, I look forward to speaking to you soon.
1: Thanks Laurie that was great. <laughs>
0: Theme song, la la song, electronic beat time and dream sequence by Lorenzo's Music is licensed under an attribution share and share alike license.